The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. Season 2 provides more episodes and features a wider variety of professions. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. Today I'm privileged to be speaking with Dr. Betty. She is an anesthesiologist who is uh, currently practicing in California. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to, to hear your story because I know you have an amazing, incredible story to tell. So if you want to just go ahead and, and tell us about yourself and, and how you came to be who you are and, and where you are. Sure, sure. So uh, I'm, you know, I would, I will start from where, like, I'm from. I'm from Ethiopia. I was born and raised in Ethiopia, and I moved to the United States when I was 16. And my entire family moved from the capital city of Ethiopia, which is Addis Ababa, to Los Angeles. Um, and so that happened. It was a big cultural shock, obviously, like you can imagine, and um, it required a lot of adjustment. When I got to LA. I I came from a French system, so I like I speak French, and I've learned it since I was two or three years old. And I grew up in a French system in Ethiopia, so when I came to this country, my English was terrible. Even though my writing was fine, uh, I was still I was always I've always been good in academics, especially in like STEM, and so that was okay. But I struggled a lot to kind of you know communicate, adjust, and you know getting to high school, and yeah. so. I started high school um, and I did two years of high school. Um, and after that, I my high school experience was probably not the best. I wanted to kind of do what I need to do to get to college and then just kind of, you know, peace out. <laughs> and so I did that and I went to UCLA. I was very grateful to get into UCLA. Uh, I did, once I um, entered UCLA, I did three years of uh, French, like undergrad. That was my major. I was a pre-med uh, since you know, the first day of like going into college, I always wanted to know, do uh, medicine and I knew mm-hmm. I was going to become a doctor. Um, and so I did three years of undergrad and then I took a gap year because I wasn't sure exactly if I wanted to go straight to medical school or um, kind of wait and like do a, a postback because I was a French major and I didn't think my application was strong enough to just go straight to medical school. Yeah. So I ended up doing, uh, I ended up enrolling in a postback program and then after like a week, dropped out because I didn't think it was the best match for me and enrolled uh, in that same, like within the same uh, month into a master's program. So I ended up doing a master's in pharmacology. So I did two years of that uh, and then applied to medical school. Uh, I did my training in medical school in Virginia. I went to UVA, uh, University of Virginia, Charlottesville. Okay. Yeah, after my um, after grad school and then. I was really tired of the East Coast. My entire family was in California. So I kind of wanted to like come back to California. So um, I did my um, my intern year at, in San Diego at UCSD, uh, which was like uh, mostly internal medicine. You know, we had that. I don't know if they still have it now, but we had a one year of, of something else, of like transitional year or internal medicine or surgery. So I, I chose internal medicine for my first year. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that in San Diego, and then I did my residency at UC Davis, um, finished that, and then um, decided to do a fellowship in global health and equity in anesthesia, which is a pretty new fellowship. 
um, at UCSF. I applied for that fellowship very last minute because I I saw it on one of our you know anesthesia newsletter the the I don't you you know the yeah. AS monitor mm-hmm. yeah so it was it was published on there and I saw it I think March or April of that year and they were interviewing candidates and I like quickly emailed the program director and I said hey like I really want to do global health. I've, in medical school and in residency, I've done some trips back and forth in Africa in terms of global health work. And so yeah. I was tr- my my true passion lies in that. And so I emailed him and I was like, you know, what do I need to do? I really want to hear more about this and possibly apply. And then they got back to me right away. I applied, I interviewed, and then I got in. It was just it, everything happened in wow. like two weeks. <laughs> yeah, it was it's crazy. It's meant yeah. to be. It was meant to be. And, you know, I moved to San Francisco and I started the program. And it ended up being just an awesome program. I can't say enough about the program. It's just great. It gave me like enough independence for me to like, uh, you know, like straight out of residency, you still are new, you know, you still are kind of like, you know, like making sure your skills are good enough and you're still like, um, you know, like adapting in a way Mm -hmm. for an attending role. And so when I, when I went to my fellowship, it was great because I worked as an attending half the time, I would say, you know, like 20 hours a week or so, 20 to 25 hours a week. And then the rest of the time I worked on my fellowship project. So it was just great. So I would just go and, you know, do my attending stuff and then do my fellowship stuff. It was just great. And, you know, I got to go to um, uh, like East Africa for some projects, uh, which was great. I uh, also worked on some equity projects, so I can go into it later. Uh, it was a great eye-opening experience, like fellowship, and I just finished that. So now I'm I'm taking a few uh, weeks off to kind of reset and you know just relax, and then I'll be going to private practice mostly. So I'll be working, um, you know, in a hospital in a private practice setting and not academic. I'll still be doing a little bit of academia on the side, but mm-hmm. my my main scope of practice will just be like you know private practice anesthesia. Yeah. Amazing. Hope you're enjoying your well-deserved uh, break. I am. I am. I'm like picking up all kind of hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> so, so as you're moving forward, starting your uh, official career as an attending, what type of practice did you join, and then what did you kind of look for as you were looking to to work with the prior practice group versus academia versus the other options that are out there? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll be joining uh, Kaiser. I'm sure like a lot of people have heard of Kaiser. It's a big hospital system here in California. And I think they're in some maybe a few states outside of California. Um, The the main things I was looking for, this was a big debate for me. I was like, you know, should I stay in academics because I want to do global health and I I do like academia? Or should I, um, you know, like do private practice and kind of steer away in a way from hardcore like academic practice and for me the decision uh was based on a lot of different things um first thing for me was if i stayed in academics it would be ucsf and like just life in san francisco is extremely expensive (laughs) and so uh, for me i was just like you know do i really want to stay in an extremely expensive city for what like i didn't have any great answer you know, other than like continuing to work on my projects, which I can do while still doing private practice. You know, that yeah. was one of the biggest things. Um, the second thing is, you know, do like it's all I think all comes down to like your quality of life as well. Like, 
do I want to continue doing research and uh, be a PI, you know, teach residents and kind of stay in that environment? Or am I looking more for a job where I show up in the morning, um, you know, take care of my patients, uh, usually, you know, work with CRNAs or whatnot, and then um, kind of go home and maybe do a few things on the side. You know, I, for me, I have a lot of other like ambitions outside of medicine as well, or other things that I'm doing outside of medicine. So I needed the time, you know, I needed that extra time of me, like not working on a bunch of projects so I can work yeah. on my own personal projects, you know? So it was a combination of many different, uh, like factors. Uh, I'm, I am very grateful now that I can do both in a way, you know, I'm still, going to be working in the hospital and I mostly work with CRNAs and I do my own cases once in a while. Um, and then the rest of the time I would also be like teaching. It was most, mostly of a teaching mentorship role um, to residents um, at UCSF. So, so it ends up being like a pretty good deal. Cool. Yeah. Sounds like the best of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're shopping through different groups and, and looking around, they kind of advertise what, type of anesthesia they practice. So they'll say, you know, some peds, no peds, OB. What um, type of anesthesia will you be doing? Yeah, um, I'll mostly be doing general anesthesia and then OB anesthesia. Uh, those are the main things. I do do like regional anesthesia where we do blocks and things like that for like my cases. Um, and that's and that's pretty much it. I do not do any ICU cases, but I, we do go up to the ICU and sometimes intubate or place lines if we they asked us to, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we have done before. But it's mostly going to be general anesthesia, OB. I don't do any peds. I would not be doing any, uh, like, uh, cardiothoracic or cardiovascular anesthesia. Um, so it'll be OB and general anesthesia. Most of it will be that. Yeah, that's so cool. It's definitely so much flexibility in the yeah. field. Yeah. So at what point did you decide to become a doctor? It sounds like you decided at a very young age or early on. Yeah, you know, I I honestly don't remember like a specific like instance. I've always almost wanted to become a doctor since I was maybe 10 or so. Um, I loved science. I loved anatomy since I was like much very young. It just always fascinated me, you know. And so that was always, that's always been in the back of my mind. And then through time, I had a few... Uh, like family illnesses, I got sick at some point myself, and I had surgery. All those like things compounded to me being like, "Hey, I, I think I really want to do this and be on the other side, you know, for once and see how it is and how to take care of patients and kind of give back in a way, you know." So at UCLA, you you were pre med, and then how was your time at UVA? Uh, it was it was fine. It was great. Uh, UVA w- was a good four years. Um, I was involved in a few different things, uh, you know, as we're applying for residency, like there's like, as you, as you know, a few things that we have to like do and kind of make sure like our resume looks good when we're applying. So I ended up doing research. I've always done research a lot, even in undergrad and like grad school, I had like a research thesis and stuff. So I ended up doing pretty cool research in anesthesia at UVA where we like were testing this new like steroid based uh, anesthetic on rats. Hmm. So that was cool. Yeah. And so we did that and it just got published. So that's cool. And then I, what else? I also did like a lot of recruitment efforts. I was really involved with SNMA and I was like leading a recruitment for I think two years or so where we like heavily recruited minorities into the program. 
Um, that was that was pretty cool. I I that was one thing I actually do remember very vividly. It's just you know like really trying our best recruiting and retaining uh, medical students, and and it, it did work. I mean, there's so much more uh, minorities in the program now. I remember when, like when I left, when I graduated from uh, UVA. I went back and I was just looking for pictures and I'm like, oh my goodness, there's so much more like minorities in the program. That was crazy. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it just tells you like your efforts are not always, you know, the, you, the efforts that you make today, you might not see the fruit of it like right away, but it will like slowly catch up. So I, I did a lot of uh, SNME related stuff. Uh, what else did I do? Yeah, those are the main things. UVA was a great school. I would recommend it to anyone. Um, I felt like when I came out to the West Coast, my training was very strong. You know, I felt like I learned a lot of stuff. I had like good ethics in a way, like work ethics and th- overall. And it was, it was a great training program. And maybe it was because, you know, they always say like the East Coast and the West Coast. Yeah. is different, <laughs> you know. And so I don't know if it's because of that, but I remember coming to he like to California and I was like, like everyone is so chill here. <laughs> Adjustment. Yeah. And so it was, it was a great program. Yeah. And then why did you choose anesthesiology? That's a very good question. So when I was 16, I had like major surgery. I had like a very rare condition called, I'm sure you know it, but for those who are listening and don't, don't know what it is, it's, it's called pheochromocytoma. And you learn it in like med school as like a very rare, like endocrine condition, that very a very small percentage of the population gets it. And so I ended up getting that. And so when I was scheduled for my surgery and I was going in, the surgeon, I vividly remember the surgeon saying, oh, you know, like the surgery is very complicated and, you know, it you surviving pretty much relies on many pe- different people in the OR, especially your anesthesiologist, you should meet them because mm-hmm. they have to tightly control your blood pressure. Otherwise, you can have a stroke, blah, you know. And all, all I remember is my family saying, where is the anesthesiologist? <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, that was like my very first introduction to anesthesia. I was like, who's this person who's like in the background and doing magic that no one like knows, you know? Right. <laughs> and so... That was like the first time I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to kind of consider anesthesia. And then when I did my uh, when I went to grad school and did pharmacology, uh, which is very much, you know, I think anesthesia and pharmacology is very uh, related. Um, And so I loved pharmacology. I loved it. It was great. I just I loved everything about pharma, like the whole my grad school like um, program, which is pharm and anatomy and physiology. And so I was just like, you know what, I think I want to do anesthesia. And then when I went to medical school, I already had that in the back of my mind. So I ended up kind of shadowing very early on, like end of first year, I was mm-hmm. in the OR kind of shadowing. And I was like, I really like this. It was, you know, I just, the mix of procedures, uh, the fact that there's no rounding. Um, I like the fact that, you know, I do like continuity of care, but not to the point of, of like me being a, like a family medicine physician, you know, right. I do appreciate what they do, but uh, for me, I'm more like a very like instant kind of person, you know, like when I give a medication, I kind of want to see what it does right away. I can't, you know, I don't, I don't like waiting three months <laughs> seeing if this medication <laughs> works. <laughs> you know, I like the procedural aspect of it too. I'm very much hands on. It was great. Everything fit. And I was like, I love this field and it ended up being good. I, I love anesthesia right now, you know? Yeah. Anesthesia is such an incredible field. I mean, I'm a little biased, which is yeah. why I jumped yeah. at the opportunity to bring you on the show. I think everybody should go into anesthesiology. 
Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and then once you finish your residency training, though, you, you told us how you um, applied to this fellowship and in very short order were <laughs> accepted and started. Tell us more about this uh, amazing fellowship that you're able to participate in. Yeah, sure. So it's it's pretty new. I think it's only maybe four years old or so. Um, all the fellows who graduated have stayed in that department. So it's kind of cool to see like, who the first fellow was, who was the second one, the third one, you know. And so um, it's basically uh, all the fellows are anesthesia trained. So you have to do your anesthesia residency to apply because it's all geared towards anesthesia. Um, and the main idea is um, looking at education, capacity building, uh, anything kind of related to anesthesia on a global scale. So our group has a lot of um, work with Uganda. So they have mm. partners in Uganda who are anesthesiologists um, that they have long-term projects with, which include capacity building, research, and things like that, education. Um, they also have a lot of partners in Tanzania. So I was in Tanzania uh, for about a month and a half, about a month actually, about a month. Um, like teaching anesthesia to um, local uh, anesthesia providers and like giving them a rehearsal, like a, what do you call it? Like a, like a CME, a continued medical education type of course where we're like mm-hmm. reviewing key concepts for like general anesthesia. And we also did pediatric anesthesia as well. And so it's, it's, it's geared towards mostly I would say capacity building and making anesthesia safe worldwide. However, the, whatever the, that means, you know, if it's either through education or, uh, like un- like trying to understand why there's no anesthesia facilities, why there's no anesthesiologists or anesthetists in some countries, why is there such a shortage of medications, you know? So it's just kind of looking at those dynamics. Um, so that's one part of the project. The other part is equity work. So equity work globally, obviously, you know, that's kind of like what global health is in itself, like equity in a way where you're trying to analyze why do some people don't have like, you know, adequate medical care or like safe mm-hmm. medical care or timely medica- medical care and, and also locally. So looking at equity locally. So some of the project that uh, my colleagues were working on was um, uh, creating a consent translation video for patients who don't speak English, you know, because oh, oftentimes, you know, we usually have an interpreter phone, but it's, you know, they were doing a trial of just videotaping the consent and having someone on video explaining everything so that by the time you come and consent them it's they have an idea what's going on they they don't have as many questions to you know and so that was my project they did a recent project i was really involved in was creating a health equity curriculum for anesthesia residents and uh, surgery residents so this was uh started june of this year um it actually came from just kind of the idea of like how do we make sure residents like physicians in general have a good sense of health equity as they finish their training. Because a lot of, we don't, this is not embedded in our medical education. It's not embedded in our residency education. Right. But somehow we're supposed to be aware of these things. And it's like information that you kind of gather, you know, yeah. through your own, like, you know, process of just researching, you know. How would you define health equity? You know, I would say health equity is, there's health equality and then there's health equity. Equality is everyone has the same care. Equity is access to care, uh, safe um, care, um, based on certain predisposing factors. You know, sometimes, so I'll give you an example, because I don't know if my definition makes sense. Equity would be, 
you know, looking at, for instance, immigrants, you know, how do immigrants get um, access to care with, with them being immigrants? For, mm-hmm. so for, for example, the, why do immigrants don't have, you know, safe care? what's the reason for that? You know, is it because they don't have access to care? Is it because of the immigration status? And just like recognizing that just being an immigrant can can give you inequal care in general. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Or being, you know, an African-American person or a minority or being a certain kind of like, uh, you know, a certain, you know... Uh, socioeconomic status. Yeah, socioeconomic economic status. So as I would say health equity is... Access to care that's safe, that's timely, that's uh, in a way fair, uh, regardless of your background. You know what I mean? Regardless of what you come from, regardless of your racial background, your gender, regardless of your immigration status. You know what I mean? So that's how I would define it. I don't know if this is like the textbook definition, but that's kind of like the idea is how do we make sure even physicians graduating, residents graduating, have that knowledge, that basic knowledge that, you know, how do we make sure the patients that we see who come from many, many different backgrounds and many different statuses get the same care no matter what and understanding why there is a difference in care and mm-hmm. where everyone is starting, you know, and why someone is at this level, you know, versus another person who's at a different level and what caused that disparity in healthcare, you know, or like or health status in general. Yeah, no, that's huge and, and so important and and timely, something that we should have been focused on a long time ago. How did you incorporate that into a curriculum for the residents? Yeah, so for the curriculum, we basically came up with like core topics that we want them to be exposed to uh, in terms of equity, health equity topics. And we will, it's a very intro level course, like curriculum. So we wanted it to be not too overwhelming because there's a lot of stuff that we can be teaching, but it's, it's just like the bare minimum or the basic things that most people should know just kind of like coming out of residency and training. So we divided it into lectures and small group um, discussions. So the lectures cover like one of the topic is like health disparities and social determinants of health. The second topic is cultural competence. Um, and structural competence. The other one would be uh, structural racism and how to be an anti-racist. So there's like different topics. I think we had five, no, we had four topics. And then the last one was a health equity journal club. And the journal club, that was designed uh, not only to target residents, but to also target faculty in general. Because there's also, yeah, there's also not, there's not anything that targets faculty or staff in general, in terms of like, how do we make sure we as like we address health equity every day in our work? You know, like, do we talk about it? When do we talk about it? So that was mostly created to uh, make sure the staff and faculty also has something and like some kind of a platform or discussion about these topics that's continuous. You know, and so uh, so that got launched right before I left, um, and it was great. It went really well. Um, and then the last component of the health equity curriculum is um, community engagement, where we we are trying to expose surgery and anesthesia residents to community-led organizations so that they are able to volunteer, work with them, start projects, you know, whatever that inspires them to do. So it's just so they have that pipeline open mm-hmm. so they can they can do that if they want to. So that's that's the last part. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
it, it wasn't an easy project, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> and it's still, you know, by the time I left, the content part was done, uh, almost like 100% done, but the implementation phase has not been started. So the fellow after me was is, is kind of like starting the implementation phase, which will take a lot of work too, you know. And so... But I mean, I think it's 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 not only timely, but it's like so necessary, you know. We, like I haven't had any any kind of equity teaching whatsoever right. in or medical school, so I think there is like that thirst to just kind of learn from everyone. I think everyone is open to learn and interested in learning, so we're just kind of using that opportunity to be like, okay, this is the time to actually push this through, you know? Yeah, it's so cool. And for you, Doctor Beatty, um, how does your faith, your heritage? your culture influence how you practice medicine? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, I'll start with my faith first. You know, I'm Christian. I'm a born-again Christian. And um, I feel like in the last year and a half or so, I've become very much close to my faith and really meditating on the Bible and things like that. And, you know, I think for any faith, is I think faith is is i mean i'm going to quote the bible because that's what the bible says faith is nothing without works you know so for me it's it's you can't just have faith without really showing your faith and showing it with your own work and so for me when i take care of patients i take care of anyone who comes to the door the same you know and i try to treat everyone the same no matter what who they are where they're from you know uh and i think that should be our you know, as physicians, that should be us at all times, regardless of who our patients are, who we're taking care of, you know. But that's not always what happens, you know. We all know that, you know, when you have a celebrity who comes in into your hospital mm-hmm. or someone who's very famous or who, someone who's donated a lot of money to the hospital, yeah. you get a, a special uh, FYI email or note saying, hey, just so you know, this is who so-and-so. And you're like, well, now you're making me anxious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like... I'm not going to do anything differently, but now I'm like more anxious than I should be, you know? <laughs> and so my motto is like, just, you know, do your best at all times, do your be- best and treat everyone the same. And patients always come first, um, you know, no matter what, like even with surgeons and, you know, like dealing with kind of like canceling cases or going forward with cases and like kind of deciding what's next for a patient's care. I, I think I always have to kind of remind myself and go back to the basics of like patients come first, like patient mm-hmm. safety comes first. If this is not safe for the patient, we're not going to do it, you know? And so, um, so that's kind of like how I use my faith. Um, in terms of my cultural background, you know, I, you know, I have an accent. And so a lot of people, like a lot of my patients ask me where I'm from and that always kind of sparks the conversation. And I think when I have minority patients that makes them feel comfortable sometimes because they feel like oh, okay someone who's different who looks like possibly looks like me or has this kind of similar background and that kind of helps I think kind of anchor my relationships with patients when I meet them for like 10 minutes in the morning you know mm-hmm. so it's always good to like for me I always find it I, I, I almost find it like a, a privilege in a way to kind of be like okay you know like you know to to be able to connect to my patients to that level you know and yeah. so um, that's kind of how I use my culture. There have been many times where I like translated in my language, my native language, or like I speak French. So like I've definitely had patients who are very happy to hear that I speak French, you know, and so made, made them feel very comfortable. Actually, 
now speaking of that, I just remembered a patient I had like a few months ago. It was the young, she's probably like in her mid-20s, who was coming for an embolism coiling in the neuro IR. Mm-hmm. She had a, a, a hemorrhage, you know, but she was still pretty intact and talking. You know, it's like a small bleed and they're trying to embolize it. And, you know, where she was just, you know, she's young and with COVID, she couldn't have any of her family members in, in with her, you know. So she's like obviously scared and upset and like unhappy. And then we just kind of started a conversation. And then through just like a random conversation, found out that she speaks French and she's from Haiti. Oh, and so, wow. and it completely changed the dynamic. She was like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy. It's just like we connected. She was so happy. I met, and then afterwards I went up to the ICU by then, they allowed her mom to come in. I met her mom, and then her mom ended up knowing the surgeon, and then I met the surgeon. <laughs> it's just like, everyone's like, oh my gosh, we need to get your number. I'm like, yeah, I can't give you my number. <laughs> you know? So it kind of, I don't know, it helps to kind of like find ways to connect those patients, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's so amazing. So as an anesthesiologist, you were on the front lines of this COVID pandemic. What was your experience so when COVID hit, for us, it was like, you know, March is when we felt like the we saw the surge, you know, in the patients that were testing positive. Uh, so at that point, we stopped doing a lot of the elective surgeries, like a lot of hospitals, um, for many reasons, because, you know, we didn't know at what scale the surge was going to be, if our hospital was going to be overwhelmed. So we were immediately, I think, as soon as we had a surge, we... Everyone had a role in a way in terms of kind of like um, redesigning uh, like our roles again, because we're not doing cases anymore. So a lot of us had a free time, but all of our free time was taking um, it was taken with redesigning uh, workflow systems and protocols and things like that for COVID patients. So a lot of us were working on um, like creating space for ventilated patients. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a whole team who was you know, creating teams like team A, B, and C, you know, who comes in at what time, who takes care of patients, how do we make sure that team, if they're exposed, don't expose other people and other patients. There's like a whole, you know, dynamic with that, Um, creating actual physical space for patients in case there was like a huge surge that we couldn't control and um, creating, you know, like um, areas where patients could go and stay ventilated. Uh, I was in charge of creating a a COVID operating room so that when patients who are COVID positives come into the operating room, what would be the protocol? Um, yeah. And then redesigning the entire operating room that took a lot of efforts as well. Uh, I was also part of the team leading the, like the COVID acute response team for the hospital. So we created a team of anesthesiologists who would be called for COVID positive patients intubation and uh, for placing lines. So we just, we, our department volunteered to create a team to just handle that because the ICU was getting overwhelmed. And so whenever they had a COVID positive patient, they would call us. It would usually be uh, one attending in a CRNA is how we started. And then it ended up being an attending in a residence as, you know, the protocols got reviewed and like redefined. But we basically, you get called, you go and see the patient and kind of get a history. And um, obviously we have all of our gear and protection with us. Uh, We have a papper and our gowns and, um, gloves and things like that. And so the fact that we had a team that did this over and over again made it m- much easier, I think, in my eyes to kind of make sure you don't get contaminated, you don't contaminate other people. Like the flow was much better mm-hmm. versus, you know, just having just kind of like random people just come in one day and intubate and then the next day intubate. So we tried to do it in in lumps. So 
you know, if I was on, I'll be on for three days and then I'll be off for like a whole week and a half or so, just so I can also kind of monitor myself for symptoms and, um, and I can kind of get a break as well. It's also mentally very draining. You know, you're, you're like my first COVID intubation, I was very nervous. Like (laughs) I've intubated patients many times, but I'm just like, oh my goodness, like I have to make sure you know, as you know, like we have to intubate them right away. We don't mm-hmm. like ventilate them beforehand and things like that. So you have to intubate them right away. And if you don't, then you have to ventilate them. And then you have to ventilate them. Then you're exposing everyone to aerosols and the virus potentially, you know. And yeah. oftentimes they desaturate so fast that you, even if you do ventilate them, they might still just kind of be at a very low oxygenation. And so that was very scary. And so you know, it, it it was very mentally draining, I think. And I don't, I don't think I realized that until now, because when, when I was doing it, I felt fine. But now looking back, I'm like, man, that was very stressful. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And um, so, yeah, so I, I think the whole, I, I'm sure it's the same for every physician. I mean, it's the whole, everything is stressful, especially for anesthesia, because we are, we, our procedures that we perform are very much high risk procedures, you know, when we intubate a patient, extubate a patient, you know? And so I think for us, like, are the precautions that we have to take is a lot more compared to like maybe like an internal medicine physician who just comes in, talks to the patient and leaves the room, you know, versus right. us who are standing there, intubating, uh, in the OR, suctioning. You know, I mean, you just don't know. There are times you have to suction a COVID patient because if you can't ventilate them, you got to make yeah. sure there's no yeah. plug, you know. And so um, it's it was very, I would say, mentally definitely draining, you know. But, you know, it helps to work with a team of people who are like, supportive. So everyone's very supportive. And if anyone said, hey, I can't do this today, someone else will step in, which was really nice. Um, so, yeah. Well, I'm sure that the folks in uh, San Francisco, you know, appreciate you as well and the rest of your team there. It was my pleasure. I mean, everyone, I don't think it's just me, but everyone kind of chipped in and it was like a whole team effort. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think throughout your story... And throughout your life, there's this, this theme of increasing diversity wherever you go, increasing equity in healthcare. I think one of the most recent examples is your work with the American Society of Anesthesiologists and this mentorship uh, program that you formed. Can you tell us about that? So I created a, a mentorship program last year, and it was a very simple program where I decided to kind of match uh, underrepresented uh, pre-medical students to underrepresented medicine, like mentors, physicians. And so it, the idea stemmed from, you know, from social media, because people were texting me and DMing me and saying, hey, like, can you like review my personal statement? Like, I have like this, this is my GPA. Do you think I can get into medical school? So there's like a lot of requests to the point where I was like, you know, I think they will benefit from like a continued mentorship from physicians, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of how the idea started. I took seven students from social media. I made an application and have them apply just so I can kind of figure out if they'll be appropriate for the mentorship in terms of like when they're going to go to medical school, um, if they're taking their pre-reg classes already, if they're studying for the MCAT already or not, what their plans are, you know, to kind of assess if they will benefit from the mentorship. And then I had them match with uh, seven uh, mentors who are all underrepresented in medicine uh, physicians. And so... Yeah, so they started the mentorship um, in November, and it just ended like a month and a half ago. And the premise is all virtually done. So we started in November. This was pre-COVID, and I felt like even pre-COVID, I was like, you know, it's really hard for people to make time and meet in person. So let's just make this on Zoom or WhatsApp or whatever, whatever platform they decide to choose. And 
uh, it's in this one hour a month is the commitment. It's just one hour a month where you're supposed to meet with your mentor and um, have an agenda. So they usually, I usually give them like a small plan of what they should be covering and give them like guidance, but really is up to the mentor and the mentee to kind of discuss on some things. Um, there are definitely things that I like would encourage them to review, such as like personal statements, um, letter of recommendations, MCAT studying strategies and things like that, you know, like research. Mm-hmm. So there, like, there's like um, a list of things that I usually kind of like help, that kind of helps them guide the conversation with their mentors. But in general, it's kind of like a free form mentorship. And then at the end, uh, so it was like about an eight months program at the end that they're done. And so when they're done, you know, it doesn't mean they all get to medical school. Obviously, they're all diff- at different stages of their application, but they get what they need for that time being. You know, so for some, it might just be, hey, I just really need help, like getting motivated and like, really like someone telling me that I can do this. That might just be the mentorship, you know, even though we don't want it to just be that, but that might just be what a mentee takes away. You mm-hmm. know, for some, it might just be, oh, like, you know, I needed help with my personal statement and I got that. Or it might be I needed guidance on some things and I got that. So, the first cycle is done. The second cycle is about to start. And I just got a grant from the ASA, which I'm very happy about. And so uh, I'll be doing the same thing. I'll be changing a few things um, based on that first cycle feedback uh, and making it a bit more targeted mentorship. Um, but that's kind of the idea. And eventually I do want this to be kind of uh, uh, like train the trainer's course. So for in global health, a lot of the courses that we give we wanted to kind of grow and we want people to be self-sustainable. So once we train someone, like let's say we train a group of 20, we try to find maybe five or six people from that 20 group of 20 who will be able to train others, you know? So we train them so they can train others. So my goal is to do the same thing with this mentorship is to pick a few of those uh, mentees. And then once they get to medical school, so pick them so they can be mentors for others and they can train others and then continue that cascade of events so we're not always the one training you know at some point you just have to enable people to just do do it on their own you know and so that's kind of the idea and i would like it to be kind of run i i would ideally want it to be run by mentees honestly i i would love this to be kind of run by mentees and we are like kind of a guest and we're invited to their um talks and invited to share ideas so we'll see how it goes but that's kind of the idea i'm looking for mentors i'm always looking for mentors uh, I I think I, I have a few mentees already. I think there's more mentees than mentors, honestly. So it's never really hard to find mentees. Finding the mentors who are dedicated, that's kind of the hardest thing. So it's just one hour a week. I mean, it's one hour a month, you know? And so it's not a lot of time. And I, it makes a huge difference in the in the like the medical journey of a lot of the, the pre-med students. Like just last week, I did a mock interview with one um and she's doing really well she's really happy her interview went well you know um i just had like yesterday i had uh uh like a, a session with one of my of the mentees she was not my mentee but she's one of the mentees from the program and she just wanted to talk about just like m- like medicine and life in general because she's really con- concerned that if she she can't even do it or if she you know and it's just right giving them guidance you know it's just helpful and just like they are she was asking just like real questions you know like how many do you think, I don't know if I'm going to have a lot of loans or, you know, she's, she's a female and she wanted to get married. So she's like, do you think I can get married? You know? And yeah. so they had like just real questions that they just, yeah. And they're, it's important and they don't get that because they don't have like brothers or sisters or 
parents who are physicians or in the medical field. So they have no idea, you know? And so that's how I was. That's why I was like, you know, especially being an immigrant is so hard because you're so preoccupied with so much stuff in your life. You're like, okay, I need to get, my family needs to get health insurance. And that's like, you're busy with that, let alone like other things in like being as a pre-med, you know, or you're like, oh, I need to like find a job or, oh, I need to like find, like buy a car. Like you're just like so busy with like the everyday hustle that you just don't, you don't even have the time to reach out to mentors. And you don't even know if you have, you know, it's hard to find mentors. So I'm hoping with this program, it, this would be an easy access for students to like physicians, you know, like who've gone through it, who've done it, who, and they can get like real answers from physicians. That's kind of my goal. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Thank you for, you know, inviting me and, you know, feel free to reach out to me on my Instagram and um, text me, like, I mean, DM me. Um, I will put an email now on my profile just for any mentorship related questions, but I usually respond to DMs. Not that I need all my DMs flooded, but you know what I mean? Like if you have a burning question about mentorship or being a pre-med, I'm more than happy to answer your question. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.